So Grab just laid off 10% of the workforce, which is a very sizable dynamic because I think historically over this time period, they've been letting people leave and they haven't been adding people. So effectively a hiring freeze. And so that's been a way for them to kind of like tighten expenses and so forth. But now they decided to cut another 10%. I think they've done a pretty good job, at least in terms of the communications, right? Like no one's surprised about layoffs now in this crisis on tech winter. So it's just another company's layoff. And since then, I think their stock market prices jumped by another 5 6%, right? After the announcement. So shareholders are appreciative of this move. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseaa.com. Poland is a private B2B liquidation marketplace. The startup connects sellers carrying excess inventory with bulk buyers across the world. The platform incorporates pricing algorithms, dashboard analytics, and sustainability metrics to find great liquidation outcomes. Hundreds of tons of usable products that would have been incinerated or gone to landfill is now used by happy consumers instead. Manufacturers get more revenue, buyers get cheaper inventory, and the world benefits. Learn more at www.poland.tech. Hey, morning, Shuyen. It's morning for me. It's 6 a.m. <laughs> yep, 9 p.m. for me here. But, you know, we make it work every week. Shout out to AK Manon, obviously an old friend calling in from Boston. And he said that he enjoys the podcast episodes, especially with you, Shuyen. Yeah, there we go. Our first American, I guess, listener, I guess. So it's interesting times. <laughs> I yeah. continue to be like mildly horrified that yeah. people listen to us talk. <laughs> <laughs> Our speculations and hypotheses makes us and wild ass guesses to the future. Well, we better put on a good show, Jeremy. I know, right? So I guess I think that's three things. I think first of all is the Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg cage match. <laughs> Secondly is the oh grab God. layoffs and the Gojek layoffs in the context of that. And lastly, of course, is the Straits Times, the Singapore Press Holdings audit report has just come out. Some final findings after our previous discussion about them for the circulation scandal slash crisis. So yeah, but let's go off first. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, what do you think about that cage match that they threw at each other on Twitter? <laughs> first of all, ridiculous. Second of all, my money's on Zuck. <laughs> Gotta explain why. What's your buddy on Zuck? Um, he's younger. He's been posting videos of his jujitsu training. <laughs> True. That's a very good set of moves. I think to have, he yeah. like won a won a local match recently. <laughs> I don't know, per social media. And I feel like I saw some report about him comp completing the Murph workout in under 40 minutes, which seems pretty impressive. But I don't know. What is this? Midlife crisis. People go find new hobbies and start like challenging other billionaires to prove <laughs> that they're still young and virile. Like, I don't know what's going on. 
can I just say that two women would never do this? Like two <sighs> female CEOs would never challenge each other to a cage match on Twitter. This is just absurd. <laughs> Sorry, that's so funny. This is like, suddenly it reminded me of like Zoolander, right? A little bit like there's all these like um, competitions about who's better and so, so forth. Yeah, I, I got to say, you're right. I think it's, I think Mark Zuckerberg has the grapple game and it's really important. It's not just about punching and so, so forth. But I don't know. I think there's some like energy with Elon Musk, I got to say. He's got that, I don't know. He might have that killer instinct, I think. It's well, just... I feel like he grew up in South Africa and... There was some silly report about like, oh, he was in street fights as a kid. And I'm like, really? I don't know if I believe that. He has been looking fitter recently. Much fitter recently. From photos. And there was a tweet about this. So people were like, oh, what's happening? And he's like, oh, fasting. And then like a few tweets later, he's like, and Wegovy, which is the GLP-1 drug that helps people with diabetes, but also has a side effect of weight loss. So maybe he's trying to get to fighting weight in anticipation of this cage match. Unclear. I mean, think about it. I mean, they tell each other and say, like, look, let's obviously give each other six months or a year, get a hype up. I mean, come on, like Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, everyone's going to be buzzing. It's going to be like the match of the, I don't know, I wouldn't say century, but the decade, right? I think everybody's going to be watching it. I don't know. They throw in TikTok CEO as well. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm just saying, like, just throw in all the social media CEOs by as well, right? And then, you know, like, you should put them on teams. Are you getting the Snapchat CEO as well? Oh, Ever Spiegel, there we go. There oh, be- oh, that'd be so great! Like, oh, my, oh my, god. my gosh! But I think that's obviously a bit of beef, right? Because I think Elon Elon Musk was kind of flagging up that Mark Zuckerberg had recently spoken at a town hall that they want to launch a Twitter competitor, right? Because they felt like there's an opportunity. They want to move their social graph from Instagram. So I think there is actually, I mean, it's not just like a let's fight for fight's sake, but it's also like, hey, I think there's a sense that I think everybody's trying to get competitive, right? Because of, I don't know, like AI, right? Everybody's trying to do AI. Both sides have their own thesis on AI. Now they're both doing social networks. So I think that, I don't know what's the word, that piece is now changing to like the encroachment to each other's boundaries. So it's going to be an interesting challenge. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, man. It, it's kind of an interesting question, right? Do you think Facebook can build a Twitter competitor and succeed? And secondly, like, is this a good use of their time relative to all the other opportunities in front of them? Mm. Yeah, but I think in a sense an opportunity, right, which is that the Twitter advertisers have mostly kind of like jumped, right? Now, obviously, it's a membership structure. So I think it's an opportunity just to pick off more of the advertising budget that Facebook and Meta needs, right? So yeah. it feels like there's more like taking opportunity, which I can imagine Elon Musk isn't happy about, right? Yeah, I mean, so I buy that, right, which is that they have a much better ad system and that has powered like both Facebook and Instagram. And right. that's a huge asset, right, which is that an advertiser could go in and basically have access to lots of different types of segments and, and, and audiences. So that makes sense to me. But like, I don't know. Like, they just haven't really launched a product that's been successful, right? All the big successes have come through acquisition, right? So Ooh. Instagram, WhatsApp, Bye, Twitter, Oculus. I don't know if you want that either. I mean, it seems like a dumpster fire right now, but... I think yeah, it's, it's um, an interesting question. 
I mean, Twitter does look like, I think there's a lot of analysis saying that they hit it potentially towards bankruptcy to help reorganize the debts, the interest payments, and so, so forth. So it's not impossible that at that point of time, there's going to be a nice reset conversation to be like, okay, what's the new Twitter, I guess, version three is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> So what's the what's the Southeast Asia equivalent of the Zuck Elon cage match? Like who would you put in a ring against each other? I can't think of No, I can't think of any. I mean, I think overall I, I just feel like Southeast Asian CEOs and founders have been a lot more like focused on obviously their companies and the businesses and haven't really been public about any personality or encroach even into the media space, right? That being said, I think that brings us nicely to the second chapter, right? We're just talking about the Grab and Gojek layoffs, right? So Grab just laid off 10% of the workforce, which is a very sizable dynamic because I think historically over this time period, they've been letting people leave and they haven't been adding people. So effectively a hiring freeze. And so that's been a way for them to kind of like tighten expenses and so forth. But now they decided to cut another 10%, right? And so that's quite an interesting piece. But from what I've seen as well, I think they've done a pretty good job, at least in terms of the communications, right? I think they've done a good job announcing severance, counseling services, LinkedIn subscription to help find a new job. So I felt like the communications of it was like done straightforward. And we've talked about it, right? Like no one's surprised about layoffs now in this crisis on tech winter. So it's just another company's layoff. And since then, I think the stock market price has jumped by another 5 6%, right? After the announcement. So shareholders are appreciative of this move. Yeah. I mean, I think we've said this before, right? There's like, there's no great layoff, but there's a lot of ways to do layoff badly. And I think from an execution perspective, it was probably like pretty well handled. I think the question is like, you know, they did a small cut, I think in 2020 and then held off until now. And I think Gojek did one last year and then one this year, right? And I think in general, we see this and it's hard, but people just never cut enough the first time. And it's often more demoralizing to have successive cuts than have one big cut. But I mean, I guess for Grab, these two were like far enough apart that maybe they thought they could pull it together and just with natural attrition and a hiring freeze kind of get to where they needed to. But yeah, I don't know. I think it just seems like you should try to do these things faster. And so now then the question is, do the people who are left start looking because they're like, maybe there's going to be another cut coming? Or do they feel reassured that like, hey, we're going to reach adjusted EBITDA profitability? I haven't looked deeply into the adjustments. and like, what? how real this EBITDA number is by Q4, I guess, is the claim. Yeah. Yep, that's the claim. And I think it's doable. I think they have a quite sizable cash reserve after their public listing. So I think they also have some flex as well in terms of their timeline as well. So I think the buffer is much more, um, I think, stable, I think, as compared to Gojek, I think, who has I think, more capital requirements that they are out on the market for, right? So I think it'll be interesting to see how they also both, I think, make decisions about the various markets they're in as they compete. Are they going to consolidate? Are they going to kind of like streamline? So it's quite interesting to see. How do you think this compares, obviously, with the other big tech companies? They have Facebook, obviously, and Meta, and Google had multiple rounds of layoffs, which was 
a huge dynamic, right? Obviously, I think we see Uber and DD, for example, around the world. How do you see this comparing against other business models and benchmarks? I mean, I'm frankly surprised they didn't do it sooner. Right? I think like everyone has been engaged in a big, everyone who's burning has been engaged like, in a big exercise to get to profitability as they see the capital markets are no longer as forgiving of the unprofitable growth model. I think for Facebook and Google and the rest, it's a little bit different. Like they're not unprofitable, right? They're in fact hugely profitable, but it's more that, you know, people are looking at expenses and maybe slowing revenue growth and increased competition on the AI front and being like, well, what are these guys doing? And they are realizing also that they had built up layers of bureaucracy that were slowing down their decision-making and limiting their ability to compete effectively. And so I think those were made less of financial necessity and more out of the realizations like, hey, kind of, we have too many people here for kind of the output that we're delivering. Why don't we try to get to fighting weight? Yeah, I think it's been interesting to see also where the cuts are going to, right? So I think recruiters have been cut a lot, obviously, because if you're firing people, you're not really hiring. So a lot of recruiters are out in space. I think it's been interesting to see, for example, Indeed actually laid off the entire engineering team in Singapore, which was a big, big, big surprise actually for many folks, right? Because they had spent quite a lot of time and money and sweat, honestly, to build out that engineering capability in Singapore. And just kind of like close it pretty much all down, which was quite dramatic from my perspective. Yeah, not easy. Yeah, no, no easy answers. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think we've talked about this before, right? Just like when things are good, people tend to overhire, and you don't notice it because growth kind of masks a lot of sins. And then you know when things turn, you end up cutting. I think the one notable exception is Apple, right? Apple hasn't laid off and partially like Apple didn't grow as fast. You look at all the headcount numbers. And so I think that kind of operational discipline is actually pretty impressive because people's tendency is to want to build their their own fiefdoms. And that usually comes with adding more headcount. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also to do with like Apple probably has had actually a longer operating history, right? As a firm, right? Than a lot of companies like Google and Facebook. Like even like, I mean, I remember after the great financial crisis in 2008, right? And then they started hiring. Before that, it was relatively streamlined and you didn't really kind of like suffer. So I think it's an interesting dynamic where I think some of the funds with that I don't know, history of going through multiple boom and bust cycles actually has started to be like, okay, how do we stay like, like you said, discipline in the good times, but also during the bad times. I don't know, man. Even McKinsey ran layoffs. McKinsey's oh, been yeah. around for a long time. <laughs> but you saw their headcount balloon. Yeah. You saw their headcount balloon kind of in the last three years as well before they did yeah. the layoffs. Yeah. Um, well, um, and banks are notorious at this, right? Yeah. In good times, they always overhire. And then when the downturn cuts comes, they, they, they cut. So, <sighs> I mean, yeah, man, it's such a rough time, honestly. But yeah, where, where, where are you starting to see people? Actually, I'm starting to see folks who have been laid off in the first wave. I'm starting to see them at their new jobs now, actually. So, 
Uh, I've seen them in marketing consultancies. I've seen them at freelancing. I've seen them at larger companies, tier two or tier three companies. So that's what I've seen. What else have you seen that people head towards? Yeah, I mean, I haven't. That's that's pretty consistent, I think. I think because I hang out with founders, like they're not firing themselves. So I'm a bit not tracking that as closely. But yeah, I mean, the, the few that I have seen probably end up freelancing. And I think if you are sort of like a designer or an engineer or a marketer, it's actually a skill that is pretty in demand. It might not be like at a company full-time role, but people are always looking for projects to be done and you can kind of hustle stuff together. And who knows, like maybe people find that independence and that agency really fun and they turn it into something or they use it as a time to like workshop ideas and think about other things. Yeah. Uh, we discussed that at a previous time, right? Which is uh, we gave advice about how to handle if you were laid off, how there's light at the end of the tunnel and how to kind of like navigate the skill sets that's needed. So for folks who are listening, they can obviously check out that previous episode. But has your thinking evolved between that last episode, which was several months ago to today? Obviously, we've seen more layoffs since then. We've also seen the market start to change. No, I think it's pretty much kind of where we were a couple months ago, right? I mean, there continues to be full employment in Singapore. There are still jobs. People are hiring, you know, so I think there's a sort of like, do you take sort of something that wasn't necessarily your dream job or do you think about like different versions of how your skills could, can be applied and just kind of be open to new opportunities? Right. Or do you like take a bit of time off and, and sort of regroup and, and think about, do you want to do something independent? So, I mean, I think the one good thing about Singapore is I think most people, their costs aren't totally out of control. Mm -hmm. And so getting laid off is not necessarily like as traumatic. Whereas I think like often in the Bay Area, like people's housing costs are very high. And so it can be quite challenging to stay if you're not getting paid. And then that leads to kind of like more dislocation. Ah, that is something that I do think that's different, which is that I've had a lot of folks who are obviously thinking about jobs between the US or Southeast Asia. And obviously up till two years ago, right? I think a lot of folks were like, I want to be an employee in America. It was very straightforward. But I think I've met about two folks who are kind of like students. And for them, it's like they're very concerned because there aren't jobs actually in the Bay Area for them, even though they want to stay in the Bay Area, right? And so they're thinking about returning to Indonesia, or Singapore and having that conversation. So I thought that was an interesting dynamic. And it reminded me actually of my own experience uh, back in 2011, right? It was like that decision between East and West and kind of like the 2008 financial crisis was pretty bad. And I mean, thankfully, I didn't graduate in 2008. But I think a lot of folks who graduated in 2008 really struggled because of that um, great financial crisis um, in the U.S., so yeah, when there's a downturn, they're less likely to hire foreigners, right? They're going to hire Americans first. Yeah. And there's just fewer jobs, yeah. but it could lead to like different things. So I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> it doesn't feel this way necessarily, but like if you graduated from college in the U.S., you're like a pretty competent person, right? Like you're actually like highly skilled and you, there's many places you can apply your skills. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it it might not be exactly in the spot that you thought, but like I think one thing you end up learning is like there's so many different industries and professions that you had never really thought about or knew existed and yeah. you kind of have to be open to exploring them. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I think that's the What were you like? I mean, when you graduated, I'm so curious. How did you make a decision about your job? Oh, I mean, I graduated in a boom time, right? So it's a little bit different. But I had a summer internship and that turned into a full-time offer. And I had enjoyed my summer internship. And so when they said, do you want to come back full-time the following year? I was like, yeah, this sounds great. (laughs) But I mean, I probably could have benefited from a broader job search. I mean, I had a great time. I I was an investment banking analyst at JP Morgan, like not particularly earth shattering. But I think if I were to like go back and advise my 21 year old self, I think I would have challenged myself to like do a broader search and explore more things because yeah, there's just so many other things out there to do. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to go down this sort of straight and narrow path kind of right out of the gate. Yeah. There was actually this interesting paper I remember now that said that if you graduated during a downturn, your lifetime earnings is like some percentage lower. I don't know the exact number, so I'm not going to say it. So I'll probably just link to it in the transcript here. But it was kind of an interesting analysis, which is that, that you're, because you know, your first job salary, then you kind of get increments on that job, right? A second, third, fourth job. And so there's an interesting cohort effect where if you graduate in a downturn, you're always like one pound smaller, right? In terms of your total comp. Which is, I think, a tragedy for a lot of folks in this current situation in the tech space. Obviously, I think if you're in different verticals like hospitality or communications, I think there's a lot of jobs that are still available to you. But it's interesting to see that tech side suddenly lose that shine. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why some people delay graduation, right? If they feel like the market's not good, they're like, okay, I'm going to get a master's, try to delay and like graduate into a better job market. I don't know if the math of that actually works out, though. I'm kind of curious. I don't know if anyone's done research on that. <laughs> like, what's the, what is the game theory behind? What's the optimal path? I don't know. I think we saw that actually in China, right? Because there's such strict pandemic what's the word, controls that a lot of students actually end up doing master's programs. And that's why there's a huge graduation cohort this year. And I think the this, this central government is struggling to find jobs for all these university students, actually. So it's kind of an interesting change on the Chinese model. We'll see if it unleashes a wave of entrepreneurship in China. Uh, I guess so. I think maybe. I don't know, actually. Uh, actually, I've noticed a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs who are in Singapore now because they, are, they feel like they can be entrepreneurial in China, but they don't feel like they're going to be rewarded with the success of entrepreneurship, right? And they have no people who have been arrested before they went public or they have heard stories or alumni who have gone through that situation. And so I think a lot of that entrepreneurship, like pathing, right? is just like kind of like broken as a end step, right? For a lot of folks. So it's kind of interesting to hear. Their I don't know. Stories. I mean, I think yeah. the pendulum is swinging back. I did see an interesting stat. I'll have to find it that it's actually easier to go public in China than it is in the US or Hong Kong markets. So it's like a lower revenue threshold. And the other sort of dynamic is that 
the Chinese retail investor is creating demand for um, IPOs because there's limits on how much money mm. they can take out of the country. I think it's right. like 50K. And then they also put a cap on how many houses they can buy. So traditionally, right. like real estate is like the target for investment. And so that money needs to go somewhere and it ends up flowing into the stock markets. And so I think if you look at the last year of IPOs, right, the, the ones listed in China, whether it's on the main or starboard, have, have outperformed the Hong Kong and US IPOs of Chinese companies. So I don't know. I thought that was an interesting data point. Well, I think it ties on to like a previous episode where we discussed kind of like Sequoia China's spinning to Hongshan and there being lots of financial reward, right, for the Chinese market, both on the domestic, but also on a global listing uh, approach. On that note, I cannot help but say that I've also did my research on botanical species. And <laughs> Hongshan, it means redwoods. And Sequoia is one of the redwoods, but there are three redwoods. <laughs> so so we'll, 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 we'll... For this we'll... <laughs> incredibly pedantic clarification, Jeremy. <laughs> I just want to say that we were both right. That's what I'm just trying to say here. Okay. We're just, we were both right. I just want to kind of correct it for the record. Well, this is just came out organically, but it was rattling around my brain a little bit. Okay. So on that note, I think we're also talking a little bit about what we want to cover was the Straits Times and Singapore Press Holdings. There was that previous episode where we discussed that there was an issue where there was, let's say, potential fraud at that point of time, alleged of about 10 to 12% of the total circulation numbers for the Straits Times. And that was discovered. And then what we have now is that the internal committee has now released that report. And they kind of like talk about in very specific details about how the numbers came about, how it was done. I think to some extent, the knowledge that people had about the various programs. But they also, I think, removed the names of the various individuals. And they said that they are decided to refer the case to the police. So I think those are interesting set of findings. I think you and I reviewed it. What jumped out at you, Shien? I mean, it just confirmed, I think, that like people were knowingly doing it. So there's this whole section about like they called it Avatar. I thought that was pretty funny. And yeah, it was it commonly known that Avatar meant these like fictitious copies that again got sent to the Kaki Bucket warehouse and like destroyed. And I don't know. The whole thing just seemed a bit ridiculous to me. Like, yeah, nobody like sort of like, whoops, I accidentally destroyed repeatedly thousands of copies of news. Like, obviously it was deliberate. So, I mean, I'm glad they did the report. I appreciate the transparency. They said management was aware of it. There were a couple instances where they were like, oh, but no one at the board was aware of it. So management was concealing it from the board. But... I kind of worry that at the end of the day, they're just going to like charge some low level circulation employee when clearly that person wouldn't have done it without a bad set of incentives set by a senior person. But like they've turned over the whole senior team right at this point with the takeover. And so it's like, who is going to be held accountable for this? Not to mention like the separate fact, right? Which is like they're, they're taking what, like a billion dollar shareholder of, of taxpayer money to to fund this media enterprise, and I don't know. Do you feel like you're getting a billion dollars worth of value, Jeremy, as a as a as a Singaporean taxpayer? 
Well, I mean, it's like the BBC, right? I think there is space for government-linked media. And you can call this a charity, a nonprofit, public trust. But I think the concept of NPR, for example, like... Yeah, but the BBC is good. So is NPR. I think there's a lot of British people who are very angry with the BBC because of their supposed or possible or alleged bias or slant or boring. So I think a lot of people are quite frustrated. I just feel like we are capable of doing better. Sometimes you read the newspaper and it's like, is this a press release? Like... But I enjoy my lunch with Sumikyo Tan. That's, I always read it. <laughs> Does that still exist? It still exists. It's always such a pleasing read. I, don't, I feel like I've been reading it since, I don't know, from forever. I don't know. I feel like one of those old people who open up the Sunday copy and just go through all the comics. And I don't know. I'm one of those old people who like print on Sundays. Oh my god, I don't I can't remember when the last time I had a printed newspaper was. I don't know, it's so soothing. You open up, you open your breakfast, and then you know, you you negotiate with your family members, <laughs> you know, who gets which copy to go first. Ugh. That's quaint. That's quaint. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't super surprised. I guess I'm glad that they released yeah. it and it was transparent. But I don't know, you read it and you just feel a little bit sad, right? Like Yeah. I don't they did redact the names, but it's like you couldn't possibly have thought you were doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, some of these programs felt like more like understandable, right? I think there were like, what, eight different ways, I think, of the ways that circulation got boosted. And I think some of them were like barter and it felt like, I, I think it was conceived with a good intention. But then at some point, like you said, the incentives got warped and then people made a wrong decision and it kept it going. Even though, I think for one example they had was, they knew that, most people are not accessing the thing, right? The digital subscription because they're the numbers, but then they counted that. They counted a digital subscription the same way they count like print, right? Which is like, if I submitted the print to you, that's circulation, right? Therefore, if I sent out a code and you never used it, it's also counted. So I, I don't know. I was, I was like looking at this and I was like, yeah, like out of all the programs, I think Avatar is by far the worst, right? Worst, worst, right? Which is like, they flat out knew that it's going to warehouse and then it gets destroy and recycle, right? I think that's like worse, worse. And then there's a bunch of other programs. But I think there are other programs. I think there was like, you know, I think there were other clients that paid money. There's also a link to, I think, a fund, internal fund for charitable, for charitable donations. And it just felt at some point, it was just like, yeah, that's at some point, it was just like systematic, which was so disappointing. But I think I feel relief actually, because I think there's a lot of detail in the report. I don't know. I actually enjoyed reading the whole thing. and felt like, okay, at least they're transparent. At least they say it out loud. They say all these yeah. other things. Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like there can't be more bad news, hopefully. Fingers crossed, touch wood here. Like at least I think they're very clear about how everything happened, right? From my perspective. Yeah, so I agree, right? Which is like I value the transparency. I don't know if it was fun to read. You need new hobbies, Jeremy. But yeah, I mean, at least it wasn't swept under the rug. And then now I think the question is like, who's going to be held accountable? And like, does that actually change the behavior of the organization? Like they made a bunch of recommendations. Of course, of course, about... would, of course it would change the it's an organization. You're going to send people to get charged. You have a whole report. I think, I think people will change about how they circulate the numbers and how they audit the numbers for, at minimum. Sure. Is it going to lead to a better product? That's a different. 
that's a different thing, right? That's a different. I don't know. I think you gotta clean up the house first, right? And then you can go paint the facade and make it all nice, right? I think. Fair enough. Yeah, at least that would be my impression: is fix this first, get the foundations in, and then they can focus on fixing the product, right? I don't know. That's my hope, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What do you read these days, actually, Shien? I'm so curious. So what do I read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been trying to read a lot of the AI papers that are being published. Just trying to get a better understanding of the yeah, progress wow. in the field. Yeah, I mean, I read the FT, the Wall Street Journal, hmm. like the standard stuff, yeah. the information. Right. But yeah, I don't read... I don't know. It's been a long time since I've read anything physical. Interesting. I think I read The Economist, physical and digital. So that's been interesting. It feels like a slower pace of news. And I try very hard to block Google News and all these like daily news stuff because they kind of get to me and there's just so much information. I also read, I think, like you said, The Information, The Can, Asia Tech Review, right? With John Russell. And I think there's some interesting stuff actually on Substack, actually. Uh, so I follow them on RSS, right? Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. There's a ton of Substack. Yeah. It's hard to stay on top of. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I am trying Feedly on the recommendation of, of a friend. Yeah. And it's supposed to kind of like learn and like serve you stuff, but also able to take your subscriptions in. Oh, I like um, Stratechery. Oh, yeah. Great. Great read. Very dense, though. So I always yeah, had to kind of like I love sit it. down. And yeah. he's so consistent um, yeah. on his reporting. So I think it's excellent. And you can consume it in a podcast format. You don't have to read it. Because he has like a thing where he'll just read his his daily update. So I think that's good. And then um, I actually like podcasts for like longer form stuff. So mm. when they do sort of like deep dives or interviews, like, Ben Thompson does it with CEOs. Mm. Acquired does it with companies. Lex Friedman does it. So I think those are also excellent. Yeah. I find myself actually consuming a lot on YouTube these days. So like infographic, cartoon animated explainer videos seems to be my preferred I don't know, input. So on like biology, on economics, it just seems to be like they take the work to summarize it, right? And then they put the infographics. So it's just, I don't know, it, it clicks better for me in my brain. And also, I mean, I've been reading a lot on Kindle as well, obviously. So I think that I think the issue is that's like information diet is just like yeah, Straits Times is competing with this, right? I don't know. It's it's a tough it's a tough job for like a national newspaper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Glad it's not my job. Okay, well, I'm going to still support the Straits Times. I hope they pull through and I hope they keep running Lunch with Sumiko. <laughs> they have a billion dollars, Jeremy. I think Lunch with Sumiko Town is safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten more years. You know, what? Six seasons in a movie for Lunch with Sumiko. Uh, on that note, I'd love to kind of like summarize the thing, three big I think, conversations that we had. I think sure. the first, of course, was Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Zuck. And it sounds like you're betting on Zuck. So Who are you betting on? Are you betting on Elon? I'll bet on Elon if there's a six months kind of like lead up, which I believe will happen, right? So, and I believe it will be the media event of the year or the oh decade. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying like, 
everyone be live streaming, everybody be watching. I, I don't know. I don't know what the media teams are thinking about. You never know. It could happen, right? And they, they put the proceedings to charity, right? And then, you know, they, you know, it's bit of fun and everything. You can see that happening. And then the second thing, of course, we talked about is the Grab and Gojek layoffs. And we yeah. talked about how the timing and how we think there's a lot of impact for folks and how to handle it. Uh, and lastly, I think we talked about the Singapore press holdings, the final findings of the report. And I think it was interesting to hear your point of view about how I think it's good to see the detail and hopefully it's time for a new chapter. All right. See you, Shien. Okay. Good work. Take it easy, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.